Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode is a conversation with John Helm, partner and founder of RET Ventures, which is a venture capital firm focused exclusively on technologies and innovations for the apartment and single-family for rent business. I've known John for years now, back when he was at Marcus and Millichap, where now some 23, 24 years ago, he was creating one of the first online rent portals. Folks, do you remember portals before there were apps? Anyhow, I'm really thrilled to have him on the podcast. We recorded this episode on January 13, 2021. John is now our third guest from a PropTech VC. Previously, we had Clara Brenner from the Urban Innovation Fund, and we had Brad Grewe from Fifth Wall, episodes that I also recommend you check out. John's business is very different from the others in two key respects. First, RET Ventures just invests in technologies in the apartment and single-family rental space. And second, their investors are owner-operators in that business. So there's a fascinating virtuous cycle in their business model between the investor group, all owner-operators in the business, as its customers and guinea pigs, and the companies in which it invests. John has a really interesting business model, and I hope this exploration is a great conversation for our listeners. We hit a milestone for leading voices sometime in the last few weeks. We've now had over 500,000 downloads in the series, and the conversation with John is our 88th conversation, which means that we will have our 100th episode later this year. I increasingly view the series as a library with wisdom for the industry, and since the library is now so deep, we'll be updating the Leading Voices website to make it easier to find past episodes, and we will also be referring to related episodes in our e-blasts so that you can make connections between the current episode and past related conversations. So to our loyal listeners, as you recommend the podcast to friends, mentees, peers, and other colleagues in the industry, encourage them to explore the archives and, of course, become a subscriber. As always, it helps the podcast to have fresh ratings out there, so if you have a few minutes, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. And if you have ideas for our guest curation, especially as we round the corner later this year on episode 100, I'd love to hear from you. My email is matt at terrasearchpartners.com. Thanks also to my colleagues and team at TerraSearch Partners for sponsoring Supporting Leading Voices. And finally this week, a call out to our democratic process. We just had an inauguration of a new president. A big sigh of relief. And the best thing to say is now, let's get back to some really important work. I hope that you enjoy the conversation with John Helm. John Helm, welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. I'm thrilled to have you on the show and talk about rent tech which means technology in the world of apartments and single-family rentals. Your company, RET Ventures, is a non-traditional venture capital firm the way I look at it because the capital comes from your user base, which are multifamily investors. I'll be really interested just to understand that business model, but really to talk about how technology is impacting the apartment business. And you've been there since inception of technology in real estate. And we've watched each other do this together. So I really want to talk a lot about that and how you got into it. And you may remember we first met when you were, I guess, working at Marcus and Millichap. And you had founded Spring Street or co-founded Spring Street with Mike Mueller. Yep. Yeah. I'd been at McKinsey for about six years. Uh And Marcus and Millichap was my last client. 
and I led the, a strategy study for them. And then they hired me away to become their CFO and oversee some of the recommendations of the study. And, and yeah, we incubated a Spring Street, which was at first we called it all apartments within Marcus Millichap. And that's how I got involved with Mike. We initially hired Mike to, uh, to be president and run the company. And about what year was that? That would have been 96. Okay. And Mike came to us with a lot of ideas. And it was actually, if I give credit where credit's due, it was Bill Millichap's initial brainchild on the Marcus Millichap side. Right. And he and Mike connected and, and Mike had been thinking the same thing. And then the whole thing, I was CFO and head of corporate development. So all the new business formation activities reported to me as well. And so that was one of them. And we, we did it in-house for about a year. And then we spun it out and Kleiner Perkins invested. That would have been the summer of 97. Yeah. And I stepped down to run it full-time as a CEO. So let's put a pin in that and come back to that concept. And by the way, I'm happy you said Bill Millichap's name because we always hear George Marcus's name. And I remember that Bill was the one who really loved yeah. technology and adopted it early and thought about it and pushed for it. Yeah. Great guy. It's so, so sad that we, we lost him last year. Yeah. So let's kind of give the elevator understanding of what RET Ventures is so that we have context for the conversation, and then we'll dive in on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, obviously, everybody's seen all the, the prop tech funds that have popped up of late. Mm -hmm. uh, there's probably six or seven of us, you know, funds that are all focused on the industry and, and in, in, in many cases have a significant LP, limited partner investors mm -hmm. from various asset classes in the industry. We're somewhat unique as you pointed out, in that all of our investors or, or LPs, as we call them, are multifamily or single family owner operators and or managers. Mm -hmm. And we're up to 40 LPs now spread across our two funds. And those LPs own, operate or manage over 2 million units. And they're all obviously institutional. All but two are multifamily, and then we have on the single-family side, Imitation Homes and Progress Residential, which are, as of yesterday, the top two in the industry. Or if you saw Progress just made a big acquisition. I didn't. So, yeah. So there are 55,000 units, and I think Imitation is close to 90,000 single-family rentals. Mm -hmm. So think of us as the outsourced corporate development arm for our LPs. Mm -hmm. And we have a, by design, uh, our fund only accepts LPs that are owner operators. And the thinking there is that, as everybody knows, a highly fragmented industry. And having been an entrepreneur, you know, I knew that having strategic investors, and in fact, in my last company, I had two strategic investors. Actually, I'm sorry, I had four. Uh, I had Essex, UDR, mm -hmm. the Lane Company, if you remember them, mm -hmm. and Con Am, back when I was doing Mining Place. And I saw firsthand that the value of having you know, an owner operator on my cap table, sitting in my boardroom, Brad Forrester, if you remember him, the president of yeah. Con Ed, was on my board. And I saw the value of having that deep involvement from customers. Mm -hmm. I also quite honestly saw some of, the, some of the negatives, right? Having discussions around pricing and margins is always a little awkward when, mm -hmm. when your customers are in the room. And I had always thought the ideal approach would be to have a fund structure where you had all the benefits of the customer, but there was the fund team sitting as kind of a buffer to make sure that everybody's interests were aligned. Mm -hmm. And that's really, I think, a lot of the thinking behind the fund. And the goal of the fund is obviously to create this virtuous cycle mm -hmm. where we invest in companies that 
we believe our, our LPs could become customers of. And, and often during our, our diligence, we involve our LPs in a lot of the initial meetings. Mm-hmm. And the beauty of having 40 LPs is we only need a handful to help us. So no one's overloaded. LPs only tend to look at the stuff that they're interested in. As we all know, these are big complex organizations with huge field teams, and they can't really do too much at once. So we might be looking at a CRM tool, and we might only have four or five LPs that are really ready to tackle that issue. But then you know, a month later, we start looking at home automation, and it's a different set of LPs that are ready to tackle that issue. And what's great about that is we only make an investment typically if we see strong LP interest. Mm-hmm. So when we make the investment, we can typically really accelerate the company's growth trajectory. Right away. clients waiting for them. Yeah. And the companies all know that. So they're willing to, quite honestly, give us better investment terms. We have never had a term sheet rejected. Every time we've issued a term sheet, we've gotten the deal, and we've never been the highest price term sheet because the companies see the value that we're bringing to the table. And then we accelerate that company's growth and help them get a much higher valued subsequent round. And so net-net, you know, they end up taking less dilution, even offering us better terms because we're helping them grow their business. And then, you know, a lot of our LPs stay engaged and become co-development partners or, you know, major customers. Often, you know, we invest at the seed and A round stage. So we're talking companies that may only have a handful of customers and, you know, may only have a few hundred thousand units. Mm-hmm. And a company that size typically on its own couldn't hope to get a UDR or an Essex or a Mid-America or a Starwood as a customer because they want to see the companies mature a little more. But we have what I call safety and numbers effect, right? Mm-hmm. If if our LPs know that the fund is behind the company and the company's adequately capitalized, and they know a subset of their peers in our fund are all also interested in engaging in that company, then they'll take the leap earlier because they know they're not alone and they have a reasonable confidence level that the company's not going to go out of business in 12 months. Mm-hmm. So that's how it works. And of course, at you know, at the end of the day, we hope to help our LPs adopt better technology solutions more quickly. And uh, that helps their businesses. And then at the same time, we end up turning these companies into great investments and see very good returns. And so far, our fund one, which is now about three years old, according to Cambridge Associates, is in the top decile of fund performers. So, so far, so good. Knock on wood. Yeah, that's fantastic. A little, a little bang on my desk once. <laughs> well, and it's a big contrast. We had Brad Grewey. I'm going to say his name wrong. I do it each time. But... So Brad, who had worked at Invitation Homes, actually, but from Fifth right. Wall, talk about his business a year ago, and that's across real estate sectors and more with venture capital. When you set this up, I understand the virtuous cycle, and it sounds nirvana-like, sounds wonderful to me as a business model. But I'm just curious, is the kind of cost of capital having worked with Kleiner Perkins to start your first business, kind of traditional VC fund to come into you, is it better, worse to go for independent investors and kind of cost of capital? I'm just wondering... I like the virtuous cycle better. What do you have to give up to have all these people in the room who are already in the from room? The, from the startup's perspective, you mean? No, from your perspective as how do you raise the dough to do ah, your business? I'm just curious about that part. And this is a technical venture capital question. I don't understand that business, but I'm curious. No, we are structured like any other venture capital fund. So, in fact, we use the same law firm, Cooley, that right. Half the Sand Hill Road seems to use. Mm-hmm. And our docks are are straight down the middle, but our fund has what's called the European waterfall where our investors get their money out first, which is it's a little more unusual in venture, but it's it's a more LP friendly term. 
and we're just like any other fund that would be out there structurally with the exception that all of our LPs are, are owner operators and therefore potential customers of our investments. Uh-huh. And do you have any times when one or more of them kind of bully you into don't do this because it conflicts with our basic business in, in, yeah, well, in kind of backwards way? That is why we only have owner operator managers in our fund. We don't really have those problems, right? If we had brought in brokerages or title companies or mortgage companies or lending institutions, we might be investing in companies that are looking to disintermediate their businesses. So by design, we did not bring any of those folks into our fund. And our our specific mission is is very simple. It's to invest in companies that allow our LPs to operate their portfolios more efficiently and effectively. Mm -hmm. It's just that simple. And the beauty is since they're basically the customers of all our companies, no, we've never had a conflict situation. And like I said, we're a separate entity. So we have guardrails in our docs that say we can only invest in real estate technology. Mm-hmm. And we're focused on rent tech. But if we wanted to go off and invest in a, um, a company that made building management systems for high-rise office buildings, we could. Now, we don't think we can bring the same leverage to the table because we're not right. bringing many customers. Mm-hmm. So we don't do those deals. We've only done a few what we call non-core deals where our LPs can't buy the product. Mm -hmm. But we will do those once in a while if we think it's, A, a very good investment opportunity, and B, we can learn something from the investment that we can maybe bring back to our industry or our LPs. So, for example, we invested in a vacation rental booking platform Mm -hmm. because we're all seeing that convergence between vacation or short-term rentals and apartments, right? Right. So it gave us a nice 50,000-foot view on the industry, and it's been a good investment. Mm -hmm. Go deep on that or pick another, but give an example of kind of your textbook investment that you've done that brings together your members, your investors as best it can. Tell tell us a success story. You know, I know from your questions, you were thinking about this as well. I'll describe how we do investments. We do uh, what we call three types of investments, core, non-core, and strategic. So I just gave an example of a non-core deal. Mm -hmm. They're far and few between, and they're typically, you know, deals where we can learn something. Core deals are companies that have technology that we think a, a reasonable subset of our LPs could use and would likely deploy over time, mm-hmm. but they're not make or break, right? It's not critical to any of our LPs. They're not pounding their fist on the table at our annual meeting or our monthly calls where they're saying, we need a solution, we need it fast, go find a company. Those are strategic deals. Mm-hmm. So we also in every fund do a handful of strategic deals. And those are deals where our LPs have said, we need a solution find us something. Hmm. And the first strategic deal we did was in home automation. And this would have been now back, it was actually, I think the third deal the fund fund one did back in, it would have been the spring of 2018, I believe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in that case, if you remember back then, right, three years ago, not easy. home automation was just starting to take hold. Mm-hmm. There were probably about 15 companies that were deploying smart apartment solutions specifically designed for the apartment industry. And it's important to realize, right, it had been out and you could go buy a lock or a a Nest thermostat for your home. There were all the consumer products were out there, but you just can't go stick those in an apartment building because you as the owner have no way to control those devices, right? (laughs) We knew one company that deployed thousands of Nest thermostats. They had to log in to each individual thermostat to adjust temperatures. So, there were about 15 companies that basically developed a operating system, right, to control all these devices. 
And we actually, in that one, ran an RFP, if you can believe that, which is, you know, venture funds don't normally do that. Right. And this was an example where when I was first raising the fund and, and talking over the strategy with Mike, Tom and Eric, and then some of the other early investors like Stephen DeFrancis at Cortland and others, the group said, look, we know this is the future. We know we want to deploy this technology. But there's 15 of these guys, and none of them have more than one or 2,000 units deployed. Right. They're all undercapitalized. And we don't, we're not going to go out and spend 800 to 1,000 bucks a unit to deploy this technology, only to have the vendor go bankrupt in 18 months. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, let's run an RFP process. So I had a, a bright young associate who put together an RFP with input from the CTOs of those same companies. Mm -hmm. And we drafted what our requirements were. We sent it out to 10 of which we thought were the the 10 best companies at the time. Nine responded. Mm -hmm. We built this massive spreadsheet. Every company that had like eight tabs, you name it, it had their financials, its capitalization, what integrations they had, you know, what devices they could control, what software they were integrated with on the property management side, everything. And then we sat down and we reviewed that I still remember this early January 2018 with the CTOs, and we picked five companies, and then we ran our own Shark Tank before the NMHC annual meeting in Florida. We went for five hours straight, and I had the CTOs of all of our big LPs. I still remember Jerry Davis. You know Jerry Davis Mm -hmm. in UDR. He said, I'm going to come over and poke my head in for half an hour. He ended up staying the whole day because it was it was actually a lot of fun. Yeah. Right. We had five companies present one after another, one hour each, the CEOs on the business models. And then when they finished, we presented our financial analysis of the companies. And then we picked one. And it was smart rent. I went down to the bar that night and cut a deal with Lucas Haldeman literally on a napkin. You know, we agreed to the deal. We shook hands. We funded in enough capital to run pilots. Mm-hmm. We fully thought, you know, if this doesn't work, we'll just have to walk away from our investment. Mm-hmm. Luckily, the pilots worked. And then four months later, we wrote a much bigger A-round check, which funded the company for about the next uh, 12 months based on the positive feedback. We had made sure the company was properly funded, started pretty full portfolio rollouts in the technology. Mm-hmm. And then fast forward now, what is it, three years later, They've installed 140,000 units. They have more market share than all their competitors combined. And the company has completed three financing rounds since then mm-hmm. and has done incredibly well. Wow. And that's smart rent. That's smart rent. Yeah. Lucas Haldeman, who used to work for Fred Twomey <laughs> at Colony Starwood. Uh-huh. And then, you know, they sold that company to Invitation Homes. Yeah. And he built the first system that Colony Starwood used, which was really the first. I think it was pretty much the first at scale deployment of smart technology, and it was in the single family. Yeah, let's stick with that because it would be in single family, and and that might have a different need and dynamic than, as you say, hey, you got a 200 unit project and they're all right there versus scattered site. When you brought these different nine different groups to the table, how far along were any of them already in exactly what you wanted? Were you picking an existing thing or you're picking the team that was far enough along and understood you to then make it work right? Yeah. Normally we like to invest in a company once it's already got yeah. You know, at least 50000 a month in revenue. So it's got a product that's out. It's mm-hmm. deployed. We can kick the tires. You know, I can call up Sean Mahoney at GID and say, hey, will you take a pitch and right. tell me what you think or, or another LP. And in this case, though, most of these companies were around that. Though Smart Rent had just released product and only had, I believe, three units in pilot. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> Luckily, those three units were with one of our LPs. Right. And they said, yes, it works. And that was enough based on the credibility of Lucas, the CEO, right. who had already done 15,000 homes at Colony Starwood. He built their system in-house at Colony Starwood and lit up 15,000 homes, which is more than all these other companies. He's just done it right. in-house at Colony. So we thought he was the guy to back and the team to back. Let me make an observation because you're using, you're dropping a lot of names and you're not dropping them in like a, you know, <laughs> I got names thing. But it's really interesting because when the names of people and the names of companies are all familiar to each other, then you can co-op together to make something happen. Right. It's the warmth of those pre-existing relationships that let you say, oh, we trust this guy. He knows our business. And of course, I've known him for 20 years because that's how it works. Yeah. Yeah. But part of the magic of what you've described is that network of knowledge, that network of relationships, because they all support each other in a virtual cycle, as you described, and you set up a business to facilitate that directly. Yeah. And that's we actually often refer to ourselves as a force multiplier for the in-house technology team. Right. And we've got this group of LPs who have, who kind of opted in. The LPs that join our fund are all open and willing to share results of pilots with each other, mm -hmm. compare notes. You know, they're not opening up their books, but they're saying, yeah, we, we piloted the XYZ lock. I won't name names to upset companies. Right. And it didn't work. Make sure you use this other manufacturer's lock. Exactly. Right? Stuff like that, and which helps everybody avoid the mistakes, right? And it might be three or four LPs doing smart rent, and then they report back to the other LPs what worked and what didn't. And three or four different LPs might implement a CRM tool and then report back to the LPs mm -hmm. uh, what they found. But it, it also takes people in an industry to be willing to cooperate with each other versus believe that their decision on the electronic lock is going to put them ahead of the competition because they're so smart at every one of those decisions. Yeah. And it used to be some of that. The one special thing I think about the multifamily business is there is enough knowledge that there is some level of cooperation across the industry that's worked so well. Yeah, I think this is a very collegial industry, which yeah. is why I've probably been in it for the last <laughs> 25 years. And one of the things I enjoy most about running this fund is, you know, now I get to sit on the same side of the table right. with my LPs, whereas in the past I was a vendor sitting across the table. But I love the people in the industry, and that's one of the greatest pleasures of this job is is working with them to kind of move the whole industry forward right. from a technology perspective. And, yeah, I mean, our, our LP group, they've all opted in, right? They've written a check, and they've agreed to join our kind of consortium, if you will, and cooperate with their peers. Yeah, you know, it's not it's nothing over the top, but it's it's enough that people I think are willing to learn from each other and are open to that. Yeah, I think it's an interesting dichotomy in an industry where you compete with each other, but there is this base level of coordination, cooperation that most have. And I think organizations like NMHC have a lot to do with having yeah. facilitated that behavior pattern. Let's compete like hell over here, and then over here, let's raise everybody's boat as best we can. Yeah, I think, look, on the development and acquisition side, right, they're fighting over sites. Every day. And deals <laughs> and properties. But I think operationally, I think they all realize that, yeah. look, that let's be honest. The technology that this industry is deploying isn't cutting edge. It's mm -hmm. all been typically deployed in other industries first, mm -hmm. like revenue management, right? That was in the hotel industry for 15 years before. It yeah, the airplane. Yeah. yeah. And the same with smart home technology, right? It was a consumer product first. And then it got deployed by the SFR guys first out mm -hmm. of necessity. Mm -hmm. And then they saw that and, and started adopting a multifamily. So for the most part, I think people recognize that 
the technology itself isn't giving anyone a competitive advantage. It's how they use it. Hmm. And there we see big differences, right, in organizations and how nimble they are adopting new technology, deploying it and taking advantage of it. And that that is, I think, where people get their operational competitive advantage. Yeah, I call that the platform, the business platform. And the business platform yeah. is your people and your systems and your process of procedure. And how do you combine them to make the magic that makes it all work? So it's interesting. I want to pivot to COVID for a minute because it feels like many of the technology changes in the industry have facilitated COVID-ready systems. And if five years ago, like five years ago, we had COVID, we couldn't have done these, the Zoom meetings. So this would have been frustrating. So Zoom just happened to be ready to roll at the moment COVID hit. But I think a lot of those technologies around multifamily were at about that same place or had been being implemented and now that fast forward. Am I reading that right? And then talk about some of those changes that now are fixed and not temporary COVID stuff. Yeah, you're exactly right. I think COVID accelerated dramatically a number of trends that were already underway. And, you know, look, I can't tell you how many business plans I've seen for air purification systems, mm -hmm. some kind of a weird SaaS model or, you know, with the exception of stuff like that, that I think is temporary and due to COVID, right? Mm -hmm which by the way, we haven't invested in any of those, but we have invested in a lot of this, the companies that are supporting trends that we think are here to stay and that COVID has accelerated. So to give you some examples, probably the, the best example is a series of technologies that we believe allow a building operator to lease an apartment with no human interaction, mm -hmm. right? Maybe a couple of phone calls, but there's even AI tools now that are handling that part of the conversation. And all those technologies were being deployed, especially by some of the larger players. Piecemeal isn't the right word, but not integrated yet. Mm -hmm. But Perfect. now, because of COVID, everybody's rushed those technologies through. They're beginning to integrate them. And I think very soon, you know, people are going to be able to rent an apartment like they book a hotel room on Expedia. Or better example would be on, you know, Hilton or Marriott Bonvoy or something. It's a lot more work to make that happen, obviously, for an apartment. You've got to screen the person up front online. Mm -hmm. So that requires some kind of an online app that matches their selfie or their photo of themselves with their driver's license and then validates the driver's license to make sure they, they are who they say they are. Mm -hmm. uh, we happen to have invested in a company that does that, and their sales went through the roof when COVID first hit. That's Checkpoint ID, which is run by uh, Terry Slattery, who <laughs> I know you. And then the next step in the process is you, know, you need to track those residents, potential residents, <laughs> correspond with them, send them instructions. Maybe they're going to come tour the property. So you need a, a robust CRM solution, which <laughs> we've also made an investment in and that a lot of our larger LPs are, are deploying. And then once you get that person teed up for the tour, you know, and in a lot of places in the country right now, the leasing offices still aren't open. There's no staff on site, but you still got to rent your units. So that's where a company like SmartRent, who I mentioned, comes in handy. And our LPs that had already deployed those technologies in their properties were at a, a serious advantage when COVID hit because they had already installed electronic locks in all of their units. So a person could show up for a tour and they could get electronic access to the building Right. And then once they're in the building, the systems, whether it's smart rent or any of their competitors, can issue codes that are only good for the time window of that tour mm -hmm. to give the person access to that unit mm -hmm. when their tour is scheduled. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there, there's now self-touring apps that were developed 
Smart Rent rushed theirs to market in about 30 days when COVID first hit. And they were, it was being used in apartments, single family rentals, and actually new home sales. Yeah, new home well, sales too. That was on yeah. the podcast as well a couple months ago. Like, okay. That's Good. how they're yeah. doing it. They're touchless. Yeah. Right? Out of necessity, right? Mm-hmm. And so the great thing about that technology though is in many cases, the prospect actually prefers it, right? I don't know about you, but when I go buy a house, I don't want the realtor following me around the house. I want to look at it, you know, on my own and take my own amount of time. And the system tells you all that, right? You know when the person, oh, the person spent two minutes in unit 102, but they spent 20 minutes in unit 306. They must right. be interested in 306, right? And so you actually get good intel and it, it ends up being a better experience for the resident. You know, on the on the single family home side, right? These guys had to deploy that touring technology out of necessity because mm-hmm. when you're, you know, invitation homes or Colony Starwood back then, and you've got a couple thousand homes spread all over Phoenix, right. you can't send an agent out to tour five or six homes. It might take all day. Mm-hmm. So they started giving people access remotely to let them tour. And the SFR guys have told us that they actually saw close rates go up on self-tours. So anyway, you get a better resident experience. And right. the resident can now tour after hours. They can tour on Sunday. They can t- maybe, maybe the leasing staff is maxed out mm-hmm. and they wouldn't have had time to take the person on a tour, but the person can self-tour. Mm-hmm. So that's the final piece of that puzzle. And those technologies are all now being integrated so that you can effectively get a lease done. Oh, I guess the final piece then is also the, the online leasing capability, right? Mm-hmm. Let somebody then, they've decided they want the unit issue them a quote, do all the electronic signatures, everything's digital, and the person may not meet the site staff until on the day they move into the building. And then do relationships happen at the property? And what do relationships therefore at the property mean? And putting an eyeball on someone who's going to move in isn't protecting you, but it may also, because you're being protected more from lease decisions versus the eyeballs on the person, but maybe a relationship is established that doesn't get established here that makes them a stickier resident because of customer-client relationships. Right. Well, think about it this way. All the time that the staff were spending following up on all these leads and trying to schedule appointments and deal with all that, they can now actually spend Helping the um, interfacing with the residents. You know, Some of our LPs have said, this is going to free up a lot of my time. I can, I can turn my staff into more like concierges yeah, yeah right they can spend more time actually helping the residents maybe maybe driving some ancillary revenues and other products and services so it's a win-win totally true I, I was never as scared as the day that i met with mrs levine at 1880 columbia road in northwest in washington dc when i was trying to rent my first apartment and she was this kind of little old lady jewish lady smoking a cigarette behind a desk that was <laughs> piled high with folders and i was like begging her for an efficiency apartment and it was the most terrifying moment. I guess that cemented some kind of a relationship. <laughs> we moved a long way. Look, but you hit on an important point, fair housing laws, right? right? If all this stuff is systematized, there's also less risk that you could be accused of fair housing law violations down the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so compliance changed in a big way. Let's pivot. You talked about single family rental and, and I'll tell a story, but I think it's a true story. And we've talked about Fred Tawami, who was on the podcast, so everyone can listen to that conversation. But the single family rental business, I think, was able to be developed because multifamily property management technology had become of scale that they could then borrow. But then what Fred said was he had to throw much of it away because it was a different business and now you're describing a situation in which the multifamily business is borrowing from the single family, the technologies that that business created. So each of them leapfrogged each other. 
I may have that all wrong, but any comments? Yeah, I mean, it's like cell phones, right? Uh, There's parts of the third world where they never even bothered to run landlines because they just jumped straight to cell phone technology. Right. Right. It's it's kind of the same thing. And you're right. I I remember when people started aggregating these single family portfolios, there were a lot of naysayers saying, oh, they're never going to be able to manage all these, you know, disparate homes spread across broad geographies. But they have been able to do it. They've been able to do it leveraging technology, right? You just have to Mm -hmm. run your business differently. So you're right. They've had to develop a lot of their own in-house systems. And the biggest and best example, obviously, is what they've done with Mm self-tour. They did that out of necessity because it was way too expensive to have people go out and and open up homes and tour people and then take them to the next home and the next home. You know, it'd take all day. And with with the smart unit technology, you know, imagine you're going to tour somebody a home in uh, Phoenix, Arizona in, in July, that home's going to be 110 degrees because you're not running the AC if it's empty. But with the smart home technology, they can turn up the AC a couple hours before, cool the house down, turn on a couple lights remotely and make it nice and cool and inviting to the prospect. So it actually improves the experience. A lot of this they did out of necessity. <laughs> Hey, let me change the subject around this stuff and think a little bit. You've talked about a lot of larger players, and I'm wondering how much prop tech in multifamily levels the playing field for smaller owner operators to have access to these same technologies that the big folks have. Is that true? How does that work? Yeah, I mean, you've got you know, the old adage, right? How can you tell who the pioneer is? He's mm-hmm. the guy with all the arrows sticking out of his back. Exactly. Uh, only the big players can afford to go out and get there first and develop the the software in-house. And there are a number of companies that are willing to do that, right? They're willing to kind of pay the premium to do it in-house because they've got a big enough portfolio to amortize the costs over it. Mm -hmm. And they might get to market a year or two earlier before some startup comes along and builds the same technology with venture funding and then sells it to, you know, 50 managers who Mm -hmm. then gets them the scale. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what happens, right? And we're seeing those startups come along, you know, more quickly and, and get funded more rapidly. And that's part of our job, right, mm-hmm. is to do that. And and the big players would rather go with one of those companies and not build it themselves because it's easy to build it, but then you got to maintain it, right? right? And it, whereas it's a lot easier just to buy a software product that's customized for the industry that, that then the collective customer group, in effect, is maintaining it through the fees they're paying and it's mm-hmm. constantly being improved. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that, all these technology vendors are are kind of great democratizers mm-hmm. uh, for the industry. And does that allow like a 5,000 unit owner or a 10,000 unit owner to, they can only get five things, not 10 things? Is that what it looks like? Yeah. I mean, I, look, there are economies of scale. Every startup has a sliding scale, mm-hmm. you know, price sheet. So the guy with 50,000 units is getting a better price than the guy with 5,000 units. Right. That's how the industry operates. And then the only hidden cost there is integrating, mm-hmm. right? If you buy a host of point solutions, you have to integrate those with each other or with your property management software. Mm-hmm. So I think we do see the smaller players tend to buy more from their main software vendor, whether that's Yardi or RealPage, right? Mm-hmm. They kind of go with the suite right. because they may not have the resources to integrate. But mm-hmm. then as those point solution vendors mature, and this is part of our job, mm-hmm. uh, right, is they then build those integrations with mm-hmm. your and so then it, over time, it becomes easier for the smaller players to adopt those solutions as well. Mm-hmm. And talk about different types of multifamily, particularly workforce and low-income housing, which is probably of the, even of the of-scale properties, half of the business. 
subsidized housing or workforce housing one way or the other. And I'm imagining the things that you're talking about are higher end yuppie housing, not workforce stuff. You would think, but, you know, we've got a lot of workforce housing in our LP group. So Mm -hmm. we have to focus on everything, which is, I think, why a lot of our investments have a more of an operational bent to them. Mm -hmm. Because they're they're allowing a management company or a, a vertically integrated you know owner operator to more efficiently and effectively manage their portfolio. Yeah, you know, for example, we have an co- investment in a company called Cyclone, which is a mobile maintenance tool, mm-hmm. right? And yeah, ten years ago, if somebody had a problem in their unit, they call the leasing office or you know the management office and complain and try and describe what the problem was. Mm-hmm. And then somebody would stick up literally a post-it note on a wall somewhere. And, you know, the maintenance guy would get to it when he got to it, mm-hmm. uh, if he's on the note. Mm-hmm. And he would have to then probably go to the unit, try and figure out what's wrong. Maybe he didn't have the tools, go back, get the right tools, get the right part, right. whatever, and, and go back and finish the job. Today, you know, with, with iPhones, you know, or mobile phones, right, the resident can literally take a picture of the leaky pipe or whatever the problem is, submit it electronically with the work order. All the work orders are in the system. The property manager can prioritize them, right? They can go down the list and oh God, we gotta fix that one right away before it damages the, you know, right. our asset. <laughs> and then the maintenance guys, if they're out in the field, they get the work order on their phone. And if the, the company's already deployed uh, home automation, you know, smart unit technology, they don't even have to go back and get a key because the access code is embedded in the work order so they can go straight to that unit. Right. So it just makes the whole process more efficient. And that's a cost you have in workforce housing or in a high-end property. Last question before we change subjects on this. Talk about energy efficiency. The, the built universe, I, I read a statistic the other day, I've heard it a bunch, but it's like 40% of energy consumption is through the built environment. So do you help with that? How do you help with that? Yeah, I've read that same statistic. I'd like to understand just what, you know, the breakdown on that number, because it, yeah. it sounds huge. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's something that we're focused on. Of course, the tricky part in multifamily is a lot of the units are separately metered mm-hmm. and or, you know, so the building owner, you know, they're really only worried about the energy costs in common areas in many cases because they can do a bunch of work to perhaps save energy in the unit but that flows through the renter so it's always been a problem in multifamily mm-hmm. whereas you know an office you've got a central chiller on the roof and it's a lot easier to to go after these these numbers but we are seeing pretty incredible number of deals in this area and it's an area that we're focused on mm-hmm. everything from you know companies that effectively help the owners set up their own utility by putting solar on the roof and then right. reselling the electricity to the residents to other companies uh, we saw a company the other day that actually will guarantee the cost savings on their hbac equipment through efficiency improvements if they hire them to come in and, and do the work so yeah there's a lot happening in that area we're it's, I think it's still early, but it, it'll be an area, I think, where we see a lot of, a lot of improvement. Do you do new construction, building technology, any of that stuff? Is that part of your... Yeah, we're also looking at that. In fact, we just made an investment in a company in, in Canada called Faultville, which componentizes interior wall construction. So let's say you're doing a, a mid-rise. They can do everything between the slabs from the core to the window line. And it's pretty cool. They've got software that looks at the construction drawings. And then basically cuts to measure all the studs, lightweight gauge steel, which means you can place them every four feet instead of two feet, Mm -hmm. like lumber, 
and then they pre-cut all the holes and pre-configure for the electrical and the plumbing and everything else that goes in the walls. And then they sell panels that hang on the studs so you don't even have to drywall. So that's one construction technology. And I think that that kind of fits our view, which is, you know, we're a small fund, right? We're a fund one was 110 million. So the big kind of prefab guys who are building entire buildings effectively, right. compo- you know, componentized. We can't play in that market because the, those companies are insanely capital intensive. Uh-huh. And I think they're trying to do too much too soon. And we like a more incremental yeah. approach to things. And so we're looking at companies that more take part of the problem and make it easier to do. Uh-huh. Well, one of my interviews with, with Clara Brenner from the Urban Innovation Fund, and one of her investments was with that company. I've seen it in the New York Times lately where there's something on the ceiling and it's really your bed. You know, it looks like a sound baffle and then you push a button and the bed comes down and then it turns into a dining room table or something crazy like that. And that should be an apartment building, especially when they're, you know, micro units or small units or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. We've seen a lot of companies like that, right? That is a New York, San Francisco, maybe LA problem. Yeah. And that's where you come back to your question about workforce housing, right? I mean, the biggest apartment market in the country is Texas, mm-hmm. right? What is it like 15% of all the apartments are in Texas or mm-hmm. some crazy number like that. Mm-hmm. And those are all mostly garden. Right. So oh. you don't, you don't need stuff like that in garden. So we've been more focused on what works in garden and workforce housing that can be deployed across the country. There's a lot of great technology that comes out of markets like New York mm-hmm. that really is only good for New York. Now it's a huge market and they can build a nice business, but our LP group actually has very few properties in New York. Yeah. Tend to be focused on the rest of the country. Totally understand. So we put a pin on how you got started in this whole thing. And so let's go back to that. So you're at McKinsey and you're doing consulting for Marcus and Millichap. You become their CFO and new business person. So kind of tell your story in the 10 minutes that we have left in the conversation to, to bring it up to date to now. Yeah, well, it starts before that. I went to college at University of Wisconsin, Madison, mm-hmm. where I, I, I'm from Wisconsin. Go Badgers. And yeah, yeah I don't know if you know that the real estate program there. Best in the country. I shouldn't camp. say the best country. One of the best in the country. Grass Camp was yeah. huge. Incredible. And my senior year, I still remember this. I thought I was going to be a banker. I was an economics major. I had an offer from the Northern Trust. I had already been accepted in a Northwestern mm-hmm. night program. The Northern Trust, you know, Bank of Chicago was going to pay for me to get my MBA and let me study at work, you yeah. know, and, and it was it was the it was the dream deal, right? It was an incredible deal. And then I took Grass Camp's course my senior year, second semester, and I still remember this day. He he came out on stage, you know, he was a quadriplegic and he always had a TA helping him. And he came out on the stage and he looked at all of us and he said, I suppose you're all here because you know that more millionaires have been created in real estate than every other form of business endeavor combined. And you know, this is like a 500 student auditorium. Uh-huh. We're all poking each other going, I didn't know that. Did you know that? This is great. And he goes, I'm going to introduce you to one right now. And we're thinking, who's, who's he going to bring out? You know, Sam Zell, who's, who's coming out on stage, right? This is not 85. Uh-huh. He goes, Fred, come on out here. And a guy wearing a University of Wisconsin maintenance uniform walks out on stage. He goes, I want you to meet Fred. Fred's on the custodial staff here at Wisconsin. And Fred, every year, buys a few houses, fixes them up, and rents them to students. Fred now owns 115 houses. Wow. And he's worth, you know, X million dollars. Uh And the whole audience just, everybody's jaws dropped. So I chucked it all in, and I moved to Arizona and became a commercial office broker at 
uh, CV commercial. And I was there from 85 to 88, which is where I met Mike Buer, by the way, uh-huh. and then witnessed ground zero of, you know, the whole meltdown and, and then subsequent RTC where yeah. all the forces were made. Of course, I went back to business school thinking, oh, this is horrible. You know, this whole industry is blowing up. And went to McKinsey. All my friends that stayed in real estate, of course, made insane fortunes mm-hmm. buying properties from the RTC. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so then after six years at McKinsey, I ended up. Mark, hey, wait, Marcus I, I just I want to thank you for not doing the H bomb. So I appreciate that. <laughs> you just went right through business school, no H bomb. So you're cool. Well, it was a long time ago. <laughs> okay, fair deal. So anyway, yeah, and then George and Bill made me an offer I couldn't refuse before I knew it. I was back in real estate. Uh-huh. And that was 96. And it just so happened that our office was in Silicon Valley, right? Marcus Mochef's corporate headquarters is in, right there. Uh, it's like two miles from Sand Hill Road. Mm-hmm. And we saw all these businesses going online. And back then, if you remember, the first businesses to go online were classifieds, right? Relational database. Mm-hmm. It was the perfect application for the internet, right? Mm-hmm. And we thought, well, we can do one of these. And so that's how all apartments got going. Mm-hmm. And it was originally Bill wanted it to be a just a giveaway to their brokerage customers as kind of a, a loss leader to, to curry favor with the industry. Well, we, obviously, we figured out we had a, a valuable asset on our hands. We spun it out. And before I knew it, I was a tech entrepreneur. And that's what I've been doing ever since. Amazing. And was anyone else doing kind of classifieds for apartments? And what did that dis- that disrupted the what are those books? Papers. Newspapers. I mean, we're collectively, I guess, all those startups back then are responsible for the decline in reporting in this country, right? Because we we gutted the classified revenues of all the local newspapers, and right. that's what cross subsidized the the news staffs. Right. And that's been the kind of the death of journalism across the country. So yeah, we were probably the third or fourth to get going. Mm-hmm. You already had uh, Rent.net. Remember mm-hmm. those guys? I think Apartments.com back then was called Visual Properties. But there were a couple others, but they were all kind of raw startups. So we all got going around the same time. And it was heavy going at first, right? People were still a dialing and you had to make really light pages because the download speeds were, were so slow. And so we merged that company into Realtor.com. Mm-hmm. That became Home Store, which everybody knows that that whole crazy story. And then ultimately that became Move.com. I left with the merger. That was in 99. And I actually spent a year on the other side of the table doing growth equity for a fund in Silicon Valley. But by mid-2000, it was pretty obvious that the dance had ended, so to speak. And my economics were all kind of tied to the next fund, which everybody quickly realized may not be happening. So luckily we had had a good exit with all apartments, Spring Street. And I actually moved to Tahoe and skiing for a couple of years and signed up for the Squaw Valley Freestyle Ski Team and was out training with a bunch of college kids and high school kids and three or four guys, tech refugees, we called ourselves, mm-hmm. older guys that were, were training. And I did that for two years up there. And then I got married and started my second company, which was Mining Place, which was just the next iteration of the same ILS concept. And that's the company where I was, um, you know, I was fortunate enough to get Essex, UDR, the Lane Company and, and Con M as investors. And, and they really, you know, they helped us a lot. Mm-hmm. I sold that company to RealPage in 2011. And then, you know, I didn't quite honestly last very long at RealPage. <laughs> and so I think within about five months I had left and Again, it was, yeah, it was, it was a nice exit for us. And my wife and I had both lived in Europe when we were young. She lived in Europe. Her dad was an artist and she lived in Florence when she was a little girl. And I had gone to school in London and we both had looked back 
at how what a great experience that was. And we wanted our children to have that experience. So we picked up and moved the family to uh, Munich, Germany mm-hmm. in 2012 and really theoretically on sabbatical. And we picked Munich because we wanted to be close to the Alps. We were all big skiers. And we also needed a school that had an American school, you know, an English language school. And so mm-hmm. our options were fairly limited. And it turns out Munich's a great town to raise a family in. It's, yeah, it wins those surveys every year, the, the best city in Europe to live really? in. Yeah, it's a big, small town. Mm-hmm. It's super safe. I think mm-hmm. it's the safest city in Europe. We were letting our son when he was, I don't know, like 10, ride the tram by himself to his friend's house, you know, two stops away, nine mm-hmm. or 10. It's super safe. He once left his bike at the tram stop for a week and it was still there unlocked. It's a nice place. And then we were, you know, skiing in the Alps every weekend and it was a it was a pretty idyllic lifestyle. You're semi-retired, you're on sabbatical still. So I started on sabbatical and that lasted a week. Yeah. And then I had a friend from business school who had a fund in London. And you got to remember, this is 2012. The venture scene in Europe was still fairly nascent. Mm-hmm. And he said, look, there just aren't many guys like you over here that have built and sold a couple companies. Why don't you join our fund as a venture partner and just help us scout deals and win deals? Mm-hmm. You know, and I'll, I'll, I'll trundle you out to the, the German entrepreneurs and you can tell them stories about Silicon Valley and, and what it's like to you know deal with Sand Hill Road VCs. And that's why we stayed in Europe for four years. I did that about half time Uh and had just a great time. And venture investing in Europe in that era was great because there were probably only, there were fewer than 10 active early stage funds. Really? Very small ecosystem. And so we saw just about every deal. And that's where I built up my personal track record that allowed me to then raise this fund. I did 13 deals with them. Uh, racked up about a 5x on my investments. And I've still got, in fact, I've got one of my companies that I'm doing all this paperwork on right now because we did exit sometime this year over there. And it was a great experience. Really loved working with European entrepreneurs. Very different approach in the U.S. And you say the investing's different there. So A, you're investing mostly outside of real estate and B, investing's different there than here behavior. I'm going to maybe go a place that I don't know if this is the truth, but might that be closer to this kind of cooperative venture capital thing that you have now, or no, am I just making that one up? No, yeah, I would say it was like Silicon Valley was back during the early days of the dot-com bubble, <laughs> where VCs were syndicating deals. Every deal we did, we syndicated with a couple other VCs uh-huh. uh, because that, you know the funds were smaller, right? right? You had to. It was the same back then in you know Silicon Valley. VCs were syndicating deals less intense, I guess. You know, you, I'd go up and I'd meet a company in Berlin and I'd do the standard, you know, two hour meeting where we, you know, meet the team and learn all about the company. And then invariably they say, oh, let's go out to dinner tonight. You know, right. and I'd, I'd be out till midnight in Berlin with the German entrepreneurs, which never happens over here anymore, right? Because they've got another meeting right after you where they're pitching somebody else. And so that was just, it was much more social. It was mm-hmm. a lot of fun. I had mm-hmm. a good time over there. So then why'd you come home? And home became Park City. So talk about Park City might look, for, at least from a skiing standpoint, similar in another small town, lovely small town. Yeah. Well, we've been there four years. Our kids were becoming teenagers. We knew we had to get them back home in the U.S. school system and get them ready for college. Mm-hmm. I'm an old dad. So, you know, some of my friends already have grandchildren. I'm still getting mine <laughs> into high school. And so we had to come back, you know, I think for their educations primarily, we were ready to come home. And we actually 
moved back to the Bay, but we, we looked at Park City and we looked at Colorado because we had gotten so used to being close to the Alps. We loved the mountains and the skiing. Mm -hmm. Our kids had become pretty good skiers going every weekend that we wanted to be close to the mountains. But we moved back to California in large part because I thought, you know, I had already ta started talking to Mike Shaw about this fund. And I thought I needed to be in the Bay Area, right? San Francisco, Silicon right. Valley, venture capital, it's all synonymous. And so we moved back to the Bay and literally moved back to our same house, which we had rented for four years and put our kids back in the same schools and picked up kind of where we left off. But I think the Bay had gotten more intense and crazier while we were gone. And then we had gotten, you know, more used to the kind of the, the lifestyle in Germany, which is more like, say, the Midwest in the U.S., right? Much more, I wouldn't say slower, but uh, not the kind of intense pressure cooker that you have in the Bay. Mm -hmm. And we started thinking maybe we should move. And then at the same time, when I was working on the fund, every time I wanted to look at a deal, I was going to SFO and flying somewhere. And every uh, most of the companies I was pitching to join the fund weren't based in the Bay. And I started to realize I didn't need to, you know, have the fun in the Bay. And perhaps it might be a negative mm -hmm. because the Bay is a bit of an echo chamber. Mm -hmm. And the companies that start in the Bay tend to be valued more highly, mm -hmm. right? The deals tend to be more competitive mm -hmm. and they tend to be, you know, the sexier businesses. And if we're really honest with ourselves, real estate technology isn't the sexiest category, and the guys starting these companies aren't in the Bay. They're in Denver. They're in right. Phoenix. Mm -hmm. They're in Tampa. They're in Dallas. And that's because that's where the customers are, right? So I realized I just needed a good airport. And Salt Lake's great for that. And Park yeah. City is a wonderful place to raise a family. So we put the fund here. Park City to Salt Lake Airport is about the same as it is in the Bay Area to get from Tiburon, wherever you live, to. I know. It took me an hour from Tiburon. And right. now I can leave my house. If I have an 11 o'clock flight, I leave my house in Park City at 930. Yeah. No uh, worries. It's, it's a half an hour drive. You whip right into the parking garage. And you walk right into the terminal. It's so thing. easy. So tell, just talk briefly about, you've talked about the fund and the structure of the fund, but do you do this by yourself? Do you have colleagues? How does that work? What's, a, what's an organization like yours look like? Right. Well, the rule in early stage venture capital is one partner per 50 million, basically. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, our first fund was 110. So we have two partners. I brought in a, a guy about a year and a half ago named Chris Yip, and he spent 12 years at TPG and is a great compliment to me. He's younger, for starters. And what I liked about him was he grew up in a large professional investing organization, right? TPG is huge. Yep. So he, he learned how to build a proper investment firm because he was there. So his job you know, at our fund, if, if we kind of divided the roles, right? He's the inside guy. He's helping me recruit the team, build the organization, make sure we've got all the, the proper investment processes and all that. Obviously, I know the industry create a lot of the deal flow and, and have a lot of the LP relationships. So we're a, we're a good team. And then we've recruited a, a junior team of four bright young associates. So before we wrap up, is there anything our listeners want to know about what's coming in the technology world around real multifamily specifically or real estate generally that might blow their minds? To be honest, I don't think there's anything that blow anyone's mind that no one has thought of. Mm -hmm. But I think that we're kind of hitting that crest point where the technology is getting deployed to the point that people are going to be able to start operating their portfolios differently. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is a major change that's coming down the pipe. And a lot of the software is, is going to need to reflect that. And so we're seeing a lot of new startups that are more geared around just running the business differently, which you can finally do now with technology. So one example, right? 
I really think within the next 10 years, every building is going to go to ubiquitous Wi-Fi, just like when you check into a hotel and you've got Wi-Fi throughout the entire property. Right. It's a better resident experience mm -hmm. and you need it to power all the technology these guys are deploying, right? right? The home automation works better with ubiquitous Wi-Fi. The mobile maintenance tools work better with ubiquitous Wi-Fi. There's all these asset protection products now, right? The latest appliances people are deploying report back. You know, the, re the refrigerator is going to tell you when the compressor is about to blow. Right. Yeah. You know, so preventive maintenance, everything is going to work better with building wide Wi-Fi. And that's what allows all these uh, various products and technologies and devices to work better. And that I think is is really the future. You're going to have truly smart, smart buildings. I'm guessing, and I just read something else into what you said, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I'm going to bet it is, is that the accumulation of these technologies and these operating practices, and probably also on the investment side of our becoming more sophisticated as an industry, you're probably at a sea change level in operations that's that next generation of leader who are managing these businesses are managing the business in a more space age, I don't know, in, in a whole different way than five years ago or 10 years ago, that it's now come together holistically in such a way that it looks really different behind the scenes than it ever did before. Yeah, I think so. It's all going to be tech enabled, basically. And look, we haven't even, I guess, subject for another conversation. You can probably find another guest who's far more knowledgeable than I am, but we haven't even talked about all the construction tech, right? right. That's, that's going to be changing too. I think it'll take longer right? That's a much more complicated beast to tame, so to speak, mm -hmm. but it's coming there as well. Okay. And, you know, we're beginning to make investments in that area too. Cool. Hey, the last question on leading voices is always, what would your advice be to someone who's getting into the real estate business as a career? Well, I'm, I'm a real estate tech, right? So I guess I, I'd give two pieces, right? If you're, it's the same advice. I think people hate to hear this, right? But I really think it's important. Your first job to go learn the ropes somewhere from the people that really know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, go work at one of the REITs or Graystar or, or you know, whether you want to be a developer someday, right? Or, or you want to be on operations, go learn the ropes at one of the better organizations that are known for their expertise. Same on the development side. Mm -hmm. That experience stays on your resume and people will know where you've been trained, so to speak. And, mm -hmm. and so my advice to everybody is always go learn the ropes somewhere first. Learn on somebody else's nickel, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really true. Hey, the, and the other theme that I've heard from you throughout the conversation here is that, you know, know the business deeply, know the business well, have lots of relationships, understand the connections within the industry, and don't let them lie fallow. Keep the meaning within those relationships. I always say it's a long game so if you approach your career as a long game and relationships as a long game, it's going to make a huge difference. Well, especially in real estate, right? And that's that's one of the things I love about this industry is relationships still really do matter and deals are still done on handshakes. Yeah. And I think that's incredibly valuable and I'm, I'm glad the industry still operates that way. I really am. It's a, it's a great industry to work in. Totally true. There's great people in it. Totally true. Hey, John, thank you very much. This was a blast is all I'd hope for in the conversation. And I'm happy we got to do it together. It's been a while. So thank you. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices. And I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. 
See you next time.